How did you do this past week in accomplishing your goals? Like if you gave yourself a report card, would it be an A minus or maybe a different letter? Were you on time for all the appointments you planned to be at? Or did you run late? Did you make every customer in your job happy? Or did you forget something on the job and lose a contract in the process? Was the last week of school a happy ending on a high note? Or did your classroom feel like a zoo full of wild animals? Did that kind gesture you did for your neighbor get noticed? Or did it go unnoticed by them? Did your Bible study, prayer group, or house fellowship draw as many people as you invited to come? Did that difficult conversation with your spouse your friend, your brother or sister, your son or daughter, go the way you had hoped? Or was it left on awkward terms with no resolution? Friends, our plans don't always come to fruition, do they? What we hoped for with our plans and our desires don't always come to pass. And depending on who we are and what those plans were, we are more often than not left disappointed, uh, maybe even disillusioned. Certainly we have all felt that annoying angst, that uncomfortable and irritating turmoil stirring around in our hearts. You know that feeling, right? That feeling of being discontent. No wonder Proverbs 13 verse 12 describes this discontentment in this way. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. And we tend to think it's the major things in life that tend to bring us this discontentment, this anxiety, and this fear. But in reality, it's usually those small pebbles in the shoe that bring us the most discomfort. It's the trivial things in life things that really don't matter all that much in the grand scheme of eternity that seems to trip us up. Without realizing it, we all become professional at making mountains out of molehills, molehills that leave us feeling uneasy and unsettled. But beloved, sooner or later, we all have to learn the painful but necessary lesson while we live in God's world as God's finite creatures. We don't know everything like God. We can't be everywhere at once like God. We can't accomplish every plan exactly the way we intended like God. And we certainly don't know the future perfectly. It's one thing I have come to realize that any kind of weather forecast in Arkansas doesn't really matter that much. I really think people don't have much to do, and so they get really wild up about almost nothing. Anyway, rant back here. Friends, why is that? Why can't we know the future? Well, because only the ancient of days, who's always been, can tell you the end from the beginning. He and he alone can do that. We all know this as Christians, right? We know those Bible verses. We 
sang these attributes of God earlier, but we can often forget them. And we can often forget that we can't live up to everyone's expectations, can we? That's because we're fallible. Friends, we can't even measure up to our own expectations about ourselves most days. But every day when we wake up, we set out on our own little individual journeys throughout life, and God lovingly and repeatedly reminds his children that he is God and we are not. And he often shows us that by revealing to us that our perception and our outlook on life is misguided. It's misfiring somewhere along the way. Our perception of God, our perception of others, our perception of ourselves is somehow off along the way. You see, when we don't know and perceive God rightly, everything else in our life will tumble over like a domino effect. Then like a flat tire that is leaking air, if we don't address the issue that begins in our hearts and seek to resolve it, it could lead to a fatal crash. It could lead to self-destruction and a moral fall. And it will affect not only you, but it will affect everyone around you. What is this heart issue, this leaky air coming, coming out of the tire? What is this heart issue that can affect our entire perception on life itself? It's our pride. Human pride. It's that inflated ego and preoccupation with being served and celebrated all at the expense of others. It's living in God's world with little to no recognition that God is number one and we are not. With little to no recognition of what Jesus taught about true greatness in the kingdom of heaven. What did we learn weeks ago in Mark 9, 35? Jesus said, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. As followers of Jesus Christ, it is God's loving plan. Beginning at regeneration or when we are converted and born again. And this continues on throughout sanctification of God humbling us to reveal our self-reliant pride and to graciously and supernaturally transform our prideful hearts to have lowly hearts like our Lord Jesus. Almost like a daily alarm clock that we know is coming, but we rarely like, God reminds us daily that he is God and we are not. But in this sanctifying process, the Lord gives us a gift in exchange. He gives us a new outlook on life, a new perspective on what our ambitions should be aiming at in our life. Ambitions that actually bring God glory. And ambitions that actually bring us contentment and peace in our souls with God. So friends, in what ways has God been showing you lately that you are not God? In what ways is God frustrating your plans to show you that his plans are always better? 
In what ways is God revealing to you your human limitations? In what ways is God teaching you to put your hope in God and not yourself and help others do the same? If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Psalm 131. Psalm 131. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 298. Psalm 131. If you don't have a Bible you can read at home, you can take that Bible sitting in the chair in front of you or beside you as a gift from our church to you. As an encouragement, I always love hearing pages flip in a church setting. I don't take that for granted. There are many churches where people don't even believe, don't even, no, don't even believe the Bible, don't even bring their Bibles. So I just want to encourage you that I don't take you for granted that you are earnest to hear from the living and abiding Word of God. Psalm 131. A song of a sense of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is God's word. This psalm, Psalm 131, is found in a collection of psalms called the Songs of Ascents. You can see that in the heading or the superscription above verse 1. These 15 psalms, which start in Psalm 120, so if you've never read all 15 songs of ascents, I would encourage you to do so. It doesn't take very long. They're actually pretty short. They go from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. And these songs would have most likely been centered around the songs that the people of Israel would have sung and encouraged one another with as they made their pilgrimage or their journey to the three annual feast in Israel. Those Feast, you can learn more about them, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Booze in Exodus 23, Leviticus 23, and Deuteronomy 16. In Psalm 131 this morning, uh, we see in our text, it is written by David again. Uh, We've been in the Psalms the last couple of weeks, and David's been the author the last couple of weeks. In total, David is actually the author of four of these Psalms found in the Songs of Ascents. That Psalm 122 is written by David. Psalm 124 is written by David. Psalm 133 is written by David, as well as this one. If you look quickly down at this really short psalm, it's very brief. You'll also notice the absence of any proper names of individuals. Uh, There's an absence of any geographical locations uh, with regards to any kind of ocean or other places, nor any timestamps on any background in David's life. So we can probably assume that this psalm kind of stands all by itself. It has its own unique purpose there in the songs of ascents. 
But there are a few things that are very clear in this passage that are relevant to us this morning. What relevance does Psalm 131 have to do with us? Just a few things. Human pride is the enemy of humble dependence on God. Human pride is the enemy of humble dependence on God. And secondly, we're going to learn how godly humility radiating from one person's life can shape the trajectory for a multitude of people's hope in God. We see both of these things in David's life in the psalm, and therefore we should examine our lives today too. We should examine on whether or not we are aspiring to godly humility, like we see in David's life. And we should ask ourselves if our relationship with God this morning is affecting others for good or for bad in their relationship with God as well. I pray that Psalm 131 would be useful as we revisit what true humility is in light of how good our God is. In this Psalm, we see three characteristics of godly humility, which will serve as main application points in our sermon uh, so if you're taking notes, I have one question with three subpoints. Here's the question. What are essential traits of godly humility? What are essential traits of godly humility? Three traits, so these are like three subpoints or three qualities. If you're taking notes, number one, we're going to look at the attitude of godly humility. The attitude of godly humility. Number two, we're going to look at the ambition of godly humility. The ambition of godly humility. And number three, the outward focus of godly humility. The outward focus of godly humility. Let's look at that first one together, the attitude of godly humility. Godly humility perceives God as far superior in glory and beauty than oneself. Like comparing a grain of sand from an old dingy playground to the world's rarest and most precious diamond, godly humility positions itself towards God. It takes the attention off yourself. You care very little about staring at a mirror and beholding one's own glory, and instead you turn your back and pay very little attention to your own glory because it's an inferior glory. It's a fading glory compared to God's everlasting glory. In our psalm this morning, let's notice together then this Godward heart posture that David exemplified. And he does that, there, he does that being there in verse 1 by looking to him, the Lord, and then looking to himself. Notice what he says, O oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. David begins this psalm like all of our prayers should begin. And David begins this song in a way that should be shaping all the songs we sing as a church family. The focus is on the Lord. David calls on his creator as Lord or Yahweh in the original text. This is speaking of God's unique and personal existence as well as his glorious character. When God is referred to Yahweh in Scripture, this is speaking of how he is self-existent, eternal, 
immortal, invisible, and unchanging. It also speaks of the faithfulness of God to keep his promises. That's how God revealed himself through the burning bush. There in Exodus 3 that Greg alluded to earlier. He is the I am. He's always been, he is, and always will be faithful. He is the most faithful being in all the universe. This is the God who created the world out of nothing from his very word. And friends, this is the same God who calls a people to himself and establishes a covenant with them. A multitude of sinners he would draw to himself with his loving kindness and make them his special possession among all the nations. What people or nation did Yahweh uniquely call to himself and reveal himself to in the Old Testament? Well, David actually tells us there in verse 3, he bookends this psalm with a reference to this special covenant people. Look at me in verse 3. He begins, O Israel, hope in the Lord, or hope in Yahweh. According to Genesis 12, in God's eternal wisdom and his amazing love for the whole world, he promised to bless all the nations of the earth through this particular people, the nation of Israel. And through the rise and fall of their obedience and disobedience to their faithful God, God would continue to provide for his people. He provided what they needed to eat, drink. He would guide them through the wilderness, but he would also provide leadership for them. Leadership like prophets, judges, priests, and kings, to name a few of them. Uh, David, who's the author of our psalm, was formerly a humble keeper of sheep. He kept sheep for his dad, Jesse, as the youngest of the litter of boys. But David later would be anointed through the prophet Samuel, and be raised up to the high status of king over God's people. Over the course of years of waiting on God's timing and God's unfolding plan in David's life, King Saul would eventually be removed. And David would be raised up in his place as God's anointed king at God's appointed time. Psalm 131 doesn't explicitly tell us if David penned this early on in his reign as king, but we can probably assume it was. One of the things early on in David's life that greatly contrasted him with King Saul was David's sincere love and devotion to God. King Saul started off pretty well, like a lot of people do when they take office or take over a ministry or get a new job. They start off well. But King Saul, like so many, did not end well. In fact, the end of Saul's reign and life ended terribly. You might say, why? Things like the fear of man, impatience, jealousy, and outright disobedience to God's commands slowly but surely led to his downfall. All these basic Cousins of sin relate to the mother of most sins that contributed to the downfall of a man like Saul. You see, Saul's downfall, like so many others throughout human history have experienced, came ultimately as a result of beholding oneself 
over and above beholding our God. These sins that we read about in the Bible and in the history books are the same sins that hit the headlines of our news reports, of our social media feeds, and our court hearings today. Whether it's financial fraud, moral infidelity, statistical lies, or scandalous sins covered up by those in religious leadership, they are all related to the same common evil that is lodged deep down inside of every human being in this building. It's the sin of human pride. Pride. Pride is our attempt to cover up hidden sin and portray oneself in a brighter light than we really are. Uh, I don't know if you get hungry kind of mid-afternoon. One of my little, I don't know if it's it's a bad pleasure, but I like sweet potato potato chips. I can't remember the kind we get for elders' meetings grant, but keep, keep getting them. I like them. He came in the other week and said, oh, we, we don't have any more potato chips. I'm like, yeah, I killed it last Friday during the sermon prep. Something about two or three in the afternoon, taking salted sweet potato chips and taking it down and studying the word. But one thing I don't like about most of these potato chip bags is they lie to you. You pick them up, you put them in the grocery cart, you take them home, and you're walking around going, I'm going to have a great afternoon full of eating my chips. But what happens when you pop open that bag? It's not even half full. I bought a half bag of air. That's what I bought. Friends, that's what pride is. Full of oneself, but when you pop the bag, very little substance. And all of us got a little bit of some of that hot air inside of us. Friends, that's what pride looks like. On the outside, it promises something great, but on the inside, not all that impressive. Friends, the Bible is replete telling us about the dangers of pride. Pride is when our hearts are lifted up. Our hearts are puffed up. We walk around with our chest out and our haughty eyes looking down on others. And God hates it. He despises it. Friends, would others who know you well describe you as a prideful person? Would others who know you well describe you as a prideful person. When is the last time you took initiative and honestly confessed your own pride to someone else without being prompted to do so? Friends, there's a big difference between being honest and being vulnerable. Honest says, I'll tell you the truth. Vulnerable says, I need your help. Little kids can be honest when they're caught. But the difference between a man and a boy and a girl and a woman is not that you can tell the truth, but that you ask for help because now others know the truth about you. There is a big divide there between that kind of prideful admission and humility, I need help. Friends, this was precisely the type of prideful heart posture that David did not want in his life. 
He did not want what he knew was prevalent in Saul's heart, in Israel's heart, and in his own heart. Friends, it's the same temptation that's knocking on the door wanting to devour our own hearts this morning. You might be sitting here, though, and then you might be hearing this and going, Blake, is this one of more of your hobby horses, you know, church membership and pride? Is pride really that big of a deal? I mean, if we all got pride, doesn't God just give us a pass in the end? Friends, self-centered pride is no small thing in the eyes of God. Pride is an evil and malicious assault against the authority and glory of God. Pride is when human beings try to be godlike and ignore the only true God in the process. Pride is a carnal self-love that should be avoided at all cost. Pride distorts our thinking. Pride blurs the distinction between the creator and the creation. Friends, this is the same temptation that entered into human history into the ears of our first parents, Adam and Eve. Don't you remember? Genesis 3, 1 to 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The first temptation that that slithering serpent whispered into mankind's ears was to distrust God's authority and be suspicious of his goodness. But make no mistake about it, the temptation was for Adam and Eve to be godlike. Friends, if any man or woman, boy or girl, seeks to be godlike or be treated as such, you can count it to the bank, the source of that temptation. It's satanic. It's demonic. Human pride is the aroma that reeks from the devil's garbage dump. Human pride is the self-centered attitude that fuels the engine behind divisive church members. Author Mark Jones may even surprise some of us here today when he says that even cowards are prideful. He writes, cowards are those who live according to sinful self-love. They do not live by faith, and so they live in fear. Friends, did you know that little things that we might dismiss are actually prideful? Like self-pity, pouting, self-hatred. Those are all forms of pride. Friends, it should not surprise us then. I'll say it once, I'll say it again. God hates pride. 
God hates pride because God will not share his glory with another. God hates pride because God will not have anyone confuse or distort what he is like and get away with it finally in the end. God hates pride because pride ruins the image of God in people. God hates pride because pride is idolatrous. Pride causes us to try to find our hope, our peace, and our righteousness in ourselves and not in the God who created us. Pride is ugly, demonic, and it leads to selfish ambition, disorder, and every vile practice. But friends, our God is not like that. Our God is beautiful. Our God is glorious. Our God is majestic. Our God is perfect. Our God is pure. Our God is trustworthy. Our God is love. Our God is faithful. Our God is good. Our God is generous. Our God is righteous. Our God is worthy of our praise. Therefore, anytime a sinful creature like us aims to be godlike in our attitudes, we are confusing other image bearers of what God is really like. But then you might say, like does God really hate pride? I mean, aren't things like murder and abuse worse than pride? Listen to a sampling of what the Bible has to tell us. Proverbs 16, verse 5. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Or listen carefully to a list of sins that God shows a particular disdain towards. And notice what we find among this list. Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 19. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Guess what the leadoff hitter is? Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Friends, in the same section, did you just hear that? As murder, cold-blooded murder, haughty eyes are in the same list that God hates. C.S. Lewis once said, Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Friends, you know why many people will not come to Christ? They'll say things like, well, I don't have enough evidence. You know what that is? intellectual pride. God's clearly told us in his word, he's made himself known. It's just you've rejected the light he's shown you because you hate him. 
Friends, we all come from different backgrounds, and we all are drawn to the Lord in different times and in different ways. But friends, do not let anyone intimidate you with all this research and science and this and that. Behind all that stuff and fluff is smoke and it's intellectual pride. People don't want to be held accountable to a supreme God, and they will hide behind all sorts of mirrors to deflect it. But friends, every human being knows There is a God, he is holy, and they are guilty and sinful before him, and they will suppress it. 1 Peter 5, 5, James 4, 6 says that God opposes the proud. He resists the proud. No wonder it shouldn't surprise us when one theologian said pride is the mother of hell. That's why when it comes to things like church leadership, churches need to pay attention to this. Let me say that again. When it comes to things like church leadership, churches, church members, committees, they should pay attention to this. The Bible tells us that a man cannot elder or pastor in Christ's church if he's spiritually immature and exudes a pattern of being arrogant. Paul instructed Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, verse 6, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up, there's those potato chip bags again, with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Or what did Paul tell Titus similarly on the island of Crete? Titus 1, 7 and 8, for an overseer, just means pastor or an elder, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. That that word arrogant there in Titus 1, it literally means self-willed, or self-pleasing. A pastor who is full of himself, instead of being filled with the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 2 even says that this is what marks false teachers, a bold, presumptuous pride to dive headfirst into hypocrisy. John MacArthur once said, beware of men who are heroes of all their own stories. Mic drop, Johnny Mac. Beware of men, now we put women in there too, who are heroes of all their own stories. Members of CCBC, Pray that your elders, including your lead pastor, would have lowly and humble hearts before God. Pray that our church as a whole would be demonstrably marked by a sweetness of godly humility in our fellowship. Pray that when pride begins to show its ugly head in our lives, we would remind one another of the lowliness and the humility of Jesus dying for us. And just a word of wisdom for all of us to be reminded of, what makes someone in leadership, and that's in the home, that's in government, that's in the church, that's in the workplace, what makes someone worthy to follow is not their academic degrees. It's not the thickness of their resume. Friends, what makes someone worthy of following is their pattern of integrity and a heart posture of humility. Those are priceless but precious things that matter a whole lot to God that a lot of churches and a lot of families and our whole country 
needs to get a fresh dose of before it's too late. Pride can be so easily disguised in first impressions, can't they? But your sin will find you out. You read news headings. You get Facebook feeds. You say, hey, did you hear? Did you hear? Did you hear? You know what comes to my mind every time? They didn't fall into sin. They slid into it. Pride goes before destruction. Pride is the mother that births all these children of grotesque sin. Friends, be discerning who you follow and be discerning of the type of friends you run with. Are they marked by pride or are they marked by humility? Friends, the scriptures are replete. I'll let you read these on your own time. Remember the prince of Tyre in Ezekiel 28? God says, because your heart is proud. Or even consider King Uzziah's testimony in 2 Chronicles 26.16. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. Or King Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 32.25. But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. Friends, whether you are making minimum wage or ruling a kingdom, whether you have the title of manager, CEO, or captain, or you have the title of employee, janitor, or private, pride can leech on to our ambitions and suck the life of any godly virtue like humility. Friends, never forget God will humble those who walk in pride. God will humble those who walk in pride. And friends, if he does humble you in this life, it could be because he loves you. A good father will discipline his children that he loves. And sometimes that discipline is a heavenly spanking to bring us back down to size of who is God and who is not. But friends, if, if, if you see anyone, including yourself, never humbled by God in this life, they will be humbled in the next. The eternal wrath of God, when Jesus Christ is revealed, the wrath of the Lamb will be poured out upon the whole world. Even the rocks will cry out, and people will bow. Because they didn't bow in this life, Psalm 2 says Christ will take a rod of iron and crack their kneecaps on the ground and worship him in the next. Pride is a big deal. It's what sent Satan into this earth. And it's the mother of so many other of our vices and sins. To be prideful is the opposite of fearing the Lord. To be prideful is the enemy of bearing the fruit of godly humility. To be prideful is to act, to think, to feel, or to plan as if you are sovereign and God is not. So, how do we become humble? How do we cultivate an attitude, a heart posture that pleases our Lord? It begins by knowing and rightly perceiving God first, and then by looking to ourselves. As John Calvin once said in his Institutes, it is evident that man never attains to a true self-knowledge 
until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. C.J. Mahaney similarly writes, humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. To cultivate godly humility, we need to look to God in his word. Look at his beautiful perfections. Look at his perfect commands and find out all the ways we fall short of that glory. Proverbs 21 verse 4 says, Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked are sin. Three very practical ways to begin this cultivating of godly humility as a normal practice in our life. Number one, study the attributes of God in the Bible. Study the attributes of God in the Bible. Maybe read A.W. Pink's book, The Attributes of God, or J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. Uh, Friends, look to Jesus. Study Philippians 2 of deity putting on human flesh and humbling himself in the form of a servant, in the form of a man, and dying even to the point of death, even death on a cross for wretched, prideful rebels like us. It's hard to be prideful when you're staring at Jesus. Number two, study the doctrine of human depravity in the Bible. Study the doctrine of human depravity in the Bible. Maybe read Mark Jones's book, Knowing Sin, to help you with that study. Or go on our statement of faith. Especially if you're a member here, maybe go back and refresh. What does our statement of faith in joining this church say about radical depravity? Look up all the scriptures. Maybe that could be a Bible study for you this summer. And then thirdly, friends, this is where you really are going to start growing in humility. This includes me. This includes everybody. Number three, invite correction and ask others to hold you accountable. Invite correction and ask others to hold you accountable. Jansen is picking up on all the freckles and warts of sin in my life because he works with me. He and Julie ought to get together and share all the ways that the Lord is still sanctifying me. But I tell Jansen, hey, buddy, here I am. I'm at the church now. Hold me accountable for this, 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 and this because I need help in this area. Punctuality to my anger, to whatever it is. Hold me accountable, brother. And he'll quote scripture mid-sentence when I know I'm going in a path I don't need to go. And I'll go, yes, yes. But invite correction and hold each other accountable. Something very simple can start off something like this. Brother, I'm not being attentive to my wife when I'm home. Please hold me accountable and ask how I'm doing in that. Sister, I'm not holding back my tongue from being disrespectful to my husband. Please hold me accountable to this. Brother, I'm tempted to be sexually impure with my girlfriend or boyfriend. I've been spending more money unwisely lately. I've been harsh in my tone and in my words with my kids lately. Friends, whatever sins God brings to our minds, cultivate godly humility by honestly and humbly asking others for help. This will begin plowing the soil that will bear the beautiful fruit of godly humility. Now look, we'll be back at Psalm 131. David begins in verse 1 with cultivating an attitude of godly humility, and now he's determined that it would spill over into his ambitions as well. And that leads to point number two, or subpoint, the ambition of godly humility. This is that inward resolve of godly humility 
a humility that shows itself in humble, childlike trust in God. Look with me at verses 1 and 2 together. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. When David speaks here about his eyes not being raised too high, he's now referring in a more Hebrew poetic way of speaking about the direction of his life. In verse 1, he referred to his heart. That's his attitude, his posture. Now David is speaking about what consumed his focus, his time, his attention, his goals, his ambitions, we might say. This is talking about David's humble objectives in this life, his humble aims that he wanted to pursue. Did you catch remarkably what he said? David says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. What does David mean by that? Does David have like a type B personality? You know, he's just kind of laid back, chilling on the beach all day. Does this mean that David never researched or studied or challenged himself to grow in knowledge of anything? Well, no, I don't think David is being intellectually lazy or making excuses for himself. What does that mean that David was a couch potato that never applied himself in life? When he faced difficult tasks in front of him, did he just kind of wallow in self-pity? Quit? Never try anything that was hard in life? No, I don't think David here is being slothful or cowardly either. I don't think he's doing either of those things. On the contrary, David is exemplifying a godly humility that shapes godly ambitions. You see, David, unlike some of us, wasn't trying to be Mr. Know-it-all. He wasn't trying to portray something about himself that wasn't true. He wasn't trying to be an expert on everything. He wasn't trying to be someone that God didn't call him to be or do something God didn't call him to do. His humble attitude also affected the goals he set for himself in his life. And this also included a humble acceptance that David didn't speculate. David didn't peer into all the mind-puzzling questions that God obviously had not revealed the answers to yet. David understood that he can't understand. And he can't explain everything that happens in life because David knew that God is God and he is not. David understood that one way God will keep us humble is by putting circumstances in our lives where we honestly don't know the answer. We don't know the answers to all the why questions that hit us behind whatever mind-puzzling situation we might be in. Instead, David had a sober assessment over his own giftedness, over his own knowledge, and he recognized God's ordained limitations on his life. Friends, David did not occupy himself 
with goals and things that only God had kept secret to himself. Friends, this past week, our news feeds were littered with horrific tragedy. From the Sexual Abuse Task Force report on the Southern Baptist Convention and the gut-wrenching story of 19 young children and two teachers whose lives were taken by an evil young man has left everyone stunned, enraged, grieved. Many who have followed the stories closely have been left in utter disbelief. But these stories are just two of millions of stories we could all tell that leave us asking the question, why? Why did this person have to die? Why is that person having to live a long life now of unwanted singleness? Why is that person having to stay in a really hard marriage? Why is that person having to raise a difficult child? Why did that man or woman get cancer so young? Whether it's trying to understand the sovereignty of God and its relationship to suffering in the world, or simply us wondering if God will answer our prayers, friends, God will put us on the chopping blocks. He will put us in situations. He will put us in a time in history. He will put us in situations in our own community and in our own homes where we don't know the answer to why. God will bring us to the end of ourself so that we would accept whatever God reveals and simply rest in who God is. God will bring us to a point in our lives where all we have is what God reveals and we simply rest in who God is. Charles Spurgeon gives us something to think about here, about what it means to have this humble acceptance in life instead of asking all the why questions. He writes, Evil comes up in another form when we want to know all the reasons of divine providence, why this affliction was sent, and why that, why that father died, why those children that we love so well were taking from us, why we do not prosper in our various enterprises. Why, why, why? Ah, when we begin asking why, 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 what an endless task we have before us. If we become like a weaned child, we shall not ask why, but just believe that in our Heavenly Father's dispensations, there is a wisdom too deep for us to fathom a goodness veiled, but certain. Friends, what why question are you asking this morning? What why question have you been asking God for about five to ten years? Maybe a why question you've been asking most of your life. Friends, I don't have all those answers nor does any other human being on this planet have all the answers to life's perplexing whys. And David came to that same conclusion. 
whether they were goals in his life or knowledge he could not attain to, he did not occupy himself. He did not busy himself. He did not waste time twiddling his thumbs, anxious and fretful and discontent, looking at God, asking why, why, why. He simply said, he knows. He cares. He's Yahweh. He can be trusted. God holds the world in his hands. God knows the answer behind every why question we'll ever have. And friends, in this life, do you know what godly humility learns? Godly humility learns how to trust God with unanswerable questions in this life. Godly humility learns how to trust God living with unanswerable questions in this life. Friends, if you're not a Christian here, this is where it all begins. Jesus made it very clear. Unless you become like a child in utter dependence and trust, you cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. We must humble ourselves like children in utter dependence and trust for God's mercy that we may inherit the kingdom of heaven. Yahweh has already shown us what humility ultimately looks like. Deity took on human flesh and humbled himself in obedience to God to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus Christ, who is Lord, humbled himself and became a man like us. He willingly gave up his life instead of holding back his life. He died a death we deserve. He was born of a virgin that paved the way for us to be born again from above, that we might become children of God. You see, Jesus, when he walked this earth, always delighted in his heavenly Father. There was no stain of pride in his heart, no selfish ambition in his heart to confess. The ancient of days became the infant of days. And he grew up and he died on Calvary under the wrath of Almighty God for the sins of all of us, including our pride and arrogance and haughty eyes. For all of us who would turn from our sin and behold Jesus, turning our eyes off ourself and turning our eyes to Jesus by faith. And God raised him from the dead and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, now interceding for all of us who are God's children by faith in him. You see, being a Christian does not mean we're going to have the answers to all of life's questions. Being a Christian and having God's word and being in fellowship with other Christians, God gives us enough to live humble lives for him. The Bible won't answer every literal question you have in this life, but the Bible does answer all the most important questions that we should be asking in this life. Instead of David peering into the secret decrees of God, David said, you know, he is God and I am not. I will resolve to have a childlike trust, not like childlike maturity, but childlike trust in him. A child that says, I don't have the answers to every question in this life, but my heavenly father does. 
and I can trust him. Maybe you are familiar with that wonderful and encouraging poem that goes something like this. In acceptance lieth peace, my heart be still. Let thy restless worry cease and accept his will. From thy fears he'll give release. In acceptance lieth peace. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. David's humble attitude led to humble ambitions, to simple childlike trust that his father knows and his father cares. Which leads to our last point, David was an example to encourage others to embody the same. Look at subpoint number three, the outward focus of godly humility. Godly humility points others to the constant hope we have in God in every circumstance and at all times. Look with me at verse three. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Here David now turns away from himself and he turns to the nation of Israel. This is God's covenant people. As a king and as a man of God, David would represent the people to God and as the onlooking nations would watch and learn. Hence David here now calls the people saying, this God can be trusted. What why questions do you have, Israel? What why questions do you have, church? Hope in God, both now, tomorrow, and forevermore. One day, David's greater son, Jesus Christ, was God's promised anointed who would come and reveal himself as the hope of the world. Not just to one nation, but to a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Not just simply an ethnic national people, but a spiritual international people. A people bought by the precious blood of Jesus who've been born again by the spirit of the living God. This is the church. God's people. His bride. The question I asked at the heading of the sermon was, what are traits of godly humility? But another question that some of you may ask is this, why does it even matter? Why should we even care about traits of godly humility? Let me give you a few right out of the back pocket. First, we should care about childlike dependence and trust because without that kind of faith, there is no salvation in God. Unless you have dependence and the trust like a child, you will not make it to glory. God gives grace to the humble. Secondly, contentment in the Christian life is something we learn. Not like a magic bullet or some pill we take, but it's something we learn by accepting what God reveals and gives and resting in who God is for us in Jesus. Contentment is learned by accepting what God reveals and gives and resting in who God is for us in Jesus. Grant read from Philippians 4 earlier, saying that he had learned the secret of being content. 
in every circumstance. But how did he learn it? God brought him low. And God prospered him again. And Paul had to wait in humility on his God. Friends, if we want to learn contentment in our lives, we must learn to cast our anxieties on him. We must learn how to give thanks for every blessing he gives us in our lives. We must meditate on biblical truths and biblical promises that fuel our faith. Friends, we must rejoice in the Lord simply in the fact that we belong to him as his beloved children. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. You want to know what David's outward godly ambition was for his life? To encourage God's people to hope in God. Brothers and sisters, is that your ambition in life? If you were to look at this past week, has your life been so prioritized, sacrificed for, rearranged to help others and encourage others to hope in this God? Friends, instead of focusing on all the why questions we don't have answers to, we should focus on something infinitely more important. We should focus on what we do now. That Christ died for his church and Christ is building his church. And we are called to participate in what God is doing by calling people to himself in evangelism and by building up his church through discipleship. As we conclude, in his book, Why Should We Love the Local Church? Author Dustin Benge writes this to challenge us to see whether or not our ambitions in life are lining up with God's ambitions in the world. He writes, there are 59, you can look at them later to see if he's right, 59 one another statements in the New Testament that speak directly to what we are to do and how are we to act toward each other as Christians. For example, be at peace with one another, love one another, serve one another, forgiving one another, admonishing one another, encourage one another, do not speak evil against one another, show hospitality to one another. As these samples show the one another statements, listen, divert attention from ourselves to others. Others become the focus of our ministry. The one another passages are not suggestions for a successful life, but commands for right Christian living. Unity is impossible when we consider ourselves more significant than others. The anthem of disunity is me, myself, and I. We desire our opinions to be heard, our views considered, and our plans fulfilled. We could go as far as to say that unity requires the obliteration of self. It is the complete denial of self to maintain love, fellowship, and peace within the church. By obeying these injunctions, believers ultimately obey the second greatest command, to love one another's neighbor as oneself. 
which puts the gospel of Christ on display as the transformative power it claims to possess. Have you wondered how you can beautify the bride of Christ? than one another, fellow believers. The attitude of godly humility, the ambition of godly humility, the outward focus of godly humility. If we want to experience salvation, if we want to experience peace and contentment, if we want to have our selfish ambitions brought to death, we have to look to the one who died for those selfish ambitions. To grow up towards greatness in the kingdom of God, we have to grow down in humility before him. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you resist the proud, but you give grace to the humble. Christ humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Father, we pray that you would search our hearts for hidden pride, the mother of hell, that births so many other vices in our life. Lord, show us that in your word. Show us that through friends that correct us and challenge us and hold us accountable. Lord, cause CCBC to be a church where the soil is cultivated to bear the fruit of godly humility. Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.